All right, well, this will be the first of our pre-recorded Sunday schools. We're not really sure how long this will go, so it's unfortunate we can't have discussion, but we didn't want to completely abandon uh, the chance to teach. And um, so just please bear with us uh, as the elders make a decision on exactly what we need to do going forward. And especially, unfortunately, today, uh, I've got, I prepared very much a discussion Sunday school. Um, so I'm just going to have to ask the questions somewhat rhetorically. Um, and uh, if you guys want, especially when you get to slide eight, um, if, I'll ask the questions that I would have discussed in class. And you can pause the, the video and then maybe think about it yourself, how you would have answered. Or perhaps, uh, you know, you'll actually have to watch it with, with someone in your living room. Or this would actually make a pretty good study for a small group. So maybe you'd want to steal this and, and do it for community group uh, or family worship or something like that. And so we are, hopefully you can see my screen now. And um, we are on week seven of seven as opposed to six of six because we snuck in that last one on coronavirus last week. And we're going to finish our, our series on Summer on the Mount today. Uh, we're going to talk about what it means to, to judge others versus loving others. And uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we have objective truth, objective guidance. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would be with this time that opening your word in whatever format would always um, be a great blessing. Um, that we would long for it and desire for it. So thank you for each one that has um, dialed in today, dialed us up, uh, and said, may your word go forth uh, and have the effect for which uh, it was meant. Amen. Okay, so we did look at uh, judgment the last couple weeks, uh, before the last week on coronavirus, we, we talked about what it means uh, for the final judgment, of course, the end of Matthew 7. And then we jump back to Matthew 6 and talk a little bit about the idea of rewards um, from the standpoint, uh, or judgment from the standpoint of rewards, what eternal rewards mean. Um, and so today we're going to kind of go sandwiched between those two at the beginning of Matthew 7. And so I will go ahead and bring up the Bible and read those verses. So we're going to read the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew 7. A little out of sorts here. Let's see. Okay. So judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? Uh, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish others would do to you, 
do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let me uh, just change my screen here real quick so I can look around a bit easier here. All right, and so get into our passage. So Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Probably the most quoted verse in all of scripture, right? If, if anyone wants to know a little bit of the Bible, it's usually what they want because anytime there's any kind of demand on what we do uh, in our lives, if, if there's a, a God looking down, people don't want that. And so they latch on this verse to not judge others. But of course, without understanding the context of the Sermon on the Mount or any of the Bible, or any sense of the, the holistic teaching of Jesus, um, it, it's misquoted because it's misapplied, it's misunderstood. I find it interesting in this passage that it's the, the whole passage is kind of sandwiched between these two verses. And, and they're kind of a, they're a, they're a bit of a contrast, like bookends. In verse 1, he says, do not judge others. In verse 12, he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or essentially, I would say that's the same thing as the scripture said often, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So in the first case, he's telling you to think first about yourself. Don't think about others in the, in the idea of judgment. You want to think about yourself. And yet when it comes to doing unto others, you want to think first about others. So I find it uh, interesting, the contrast here. To, in some cases, we want to think first about ourselves. And in another case, uh, first about others. And the, the, the language here in these, especially these first five verses, Jesus is being very typically hyperbolic. And so, you know, he talks about having the log in your eye as if that's possible. Um, elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about hiding the left hand from the right and plucking out your eye or chopping off your hand. So he's being very dramatic on purpose a bit hyperbolic with his language, uh, to make a point. As we look at these, uh, in both these cases, these are going to have to be active pursuits driven by the power of the Spirit. Throughout the sermon, Jesus has made it clear that um, essentially we are, we are children of God. We are those born from above, and we, have, we are unique, as we read in the Beatitudes. Uh, and we're here for a purpose to be salt and light, um, and God demands perfection. And so what God demands is something so outside of ourselves. And that's why after these verses, uh, in the middle of our passage, he talks about asking, seeking, and knocking. Because we are totally reliant on God's grace. If you, if you read the Sermon on the Mount um, from any sense of works righteousness, you're going to be crushed. Um, it's, it's absolutely impossible. To, to live this out in any perfect sense. And yet, it's what we're called to. And so this is an example here. He's going to call us to do things that are completely unnatural to ourselves. You know, we naturally uh, notice and emphasize other failures more than our own. In John 8, that's where he says, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast, uh, to cast the first throw, uh, stone. Um, it's just so easy. It's so easy to point out other faults, not only point them out, but to think that others' faults are more grievous than our own. We tend to figure out what we're good at 
and, and it, sometimes this is just subconscious. We think we're good at something and therefore we draw a line around that. Like that's, an, that's a higher level of righteousness. And we start to judge everyone else by that standard, by our standard. And it just makes us feel good about people. We can look down on others. And so that's, that's natural. And so we need to be spirit-filled children of God to act in a different way. Uh, and then on the second one from verse 12, we naturally love ourselves. God never really has to tell us to love ourselves. It's just assumed, right? You, you love yourself, and so therefore, with how you understand that, the way you prioritize yourself, you look after your own interests, um, that's what we're to do to others. Uh, it's that simple. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. I think the Ephesians 5, the specific context is about husbands and wives, but he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Husbands, do you want to know how to take care of your wives? How do you take care of your bodies? All of us. How do you love your neighbor? How do you do unto others? You do it. Just go with what's natural for yourself, except that you now apply it to others uh, instead of yourself. And so let's look at this. What does it mean to judge others? I think there's a few things here just walking through the text we can see. The first thing is, is that uh, God judges with an equal judgment. And so however you're going to judge others, it's going to be measured to you. And so this He's going to give us some reasons why we should be slow to judge, basically, right? Um, if, when you're quick to judge, remember these things. These will help us get out of our natural self. Um, God uses the same standard. So I don't know if we realize how much in our own minds, I, I know I find myself doing this. I'm kind of a good salesman to myself. And uh, I, can, I can rationalize in my own mind and, and justify things. But Realize we're going to stand before God. We're not going to just give, you know, the facts that help us. We're going to hide the things. And um, everything's going to be open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do, um, Hebrews 4. Uh, and so whatever standard we use is going to be measured to us. Romans 2 says, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you judges, for in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We are so quick to think that a struggle that someone else has, that we would be saved from that temptation. We are fools. <laughs> another day, another time, in a moment of weakness, we are going to struggle with the exact same things. And whatever that standard we use is going to be measured to us, and it's not going to go well for us. So that's explicitly in the text. I think what's also implicit behind that statement is that we have the same judge, right? It's, we have an equal standard because we're all going to stand before the same judge. Romans 14, who are you to pass judgment on the servant other? It is before his own master he stands or falls. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so same standard, same judge. That ought to uh, make us pause when we have that urge to judge others. I think the second thing in this text is driven by that um, hyperbolic statement is that our perception on things is not so good. Now, he says it in that awesome way. You have a log sitting in your eye. How can you possibly think 
with this huge log jammed in your eye that you have any sense what it takes to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Like you, and the fact that you can see that speck and not even notice the log in your eye. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny to think about the, the picture that Jesus is, is painting for us. It's, it's ridiculous. It makes no sense. And so, you know, that urge to judge others, like it's time to stand back and, and look at yourself, maybe even get help from others. Like, where is this log that you're not seeing and how ridiculous it is um, that, we, that we would, number one, not see it. And of course, if we're aware of it, why we would focus on someone else's spec. And, and I think the language here kind of goes to like how Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. Each of us ought to think of ourselves as the chief of all sinners. It, the faults in others ought to be seen as specks. And we ought to see those our own faults as logs. And I think this, this lack of perception isn't, it isn't usually so much complete blindness. It's, it's more like a distorted vision. Um, maybe like you go look at a fun house mirror and you look all funny and different. And everything's out of proportion. I, I think our lack of sight is often that. No one's going to admit that they're sinless and perfect, right? But again, it's, we tend to highlight and make others' issues bigger in our own mind because that somehow defends ourselves. It's pride. We want, we want to measure up in God's sight uh, higher than others. We, we don't like admitting that. It sounds awful to say, but that is actually the truth in our natural man. Um, when I was learning to be a pilot, we were, we were, they were trying to teach us, you know, sometimes you're going to be all disoriented in the clouds or at night and you're going to be upside down and your body's going to be telling you one thing. And they're, they were trying to teach us how important it is to stare at our instruments. The instruments are objective truth. And you stare at those and you believe them and you do everything in your power to go against what your body's feeling. They put us in this little chair and spun us around in three different dimensions and you know, we, it's kind of like when you're on a merry-go-round and, or, um, you know, anything that spins at a park and you jump off and you're just, or, or if you just stand in the room and spin in circles and then stop, um, that is that kind of feeling where you don't really know, you know, where is up and where is down. And, and that's how it is in our life. If, if we don't have some objective, uh, truth, some, some instruments that show us reality and we just kind of go with what we feel we're going to be misled because our perceptions are off because we have logs in our eyes that we can't see, which is so important why we have God's objective word. We have objective truth. And every time we have a desire, a feeling, we're, we're wooed by the philosophies of this world or by our own natural um, imaginations, what feels right. We just have to know that that will often, if not usually, lead us astray. And I've been thinking about this through, you know, we have all these big things going on. We have the coronavirus, the, the disease itself, the lockdowns. And, of course, we've had these horrible couple of weeks of um, racial tensions, police brutality, uh, and all of that um, political discussions. But everyone has their own truth. They just think they're so right. Um, and how important it is to, to go back to God's word and find, okay, what does God say? Where, where does he speak and where he doesn't speak? And, where, where do I have something I absolutely need to stand on, regardless of my political persuasion or where my friends and family are at? And then where's something that, you know, I can let people disagree? Um, 
don't be so quick to trust your own immediate, impulsive, natural perceptions. And I think the third main thing that Jesus says here in these first five verses is he, he equates this inability to see the law in your own eye and your, your quickness to, to judge your brothers. He calls that hypocrisy. And we already saw in Matthew 6, beware of this hypocrisy. You know, as he compares the hypocrite who who's, gives to others for praise and who stands on the street corner to pray and who disfigures their face so that they, everyone knows they're fasting, they've had their reward. And, and I think essentially he's saying, watch out. You either are or at least are acting like an unbeliever. Um, you're in great danger for your, your own eternal salvation. So this is a huge warning. And we'll talk about that more at the end. I think all in all, we can say that Jesus is basically saying, you, you're guilty. You're a guilty sinner. You don't have, you're not capable of equal judgment. You're not capable of, of a right understanding and perception of the world. Uh, and you have to beware of hypocrisy. Um, you're not that perfect judge. He's saying, you're, you're worried about judging others. I, I need to warn you, you're going to be judged. There is a perfect judge. And he's, his judgment is equal. He knows exactly what he's doing. James 4, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? We want judgment. We want right judgment in the world. There, there's, there's a peace knowing that all wrongs will be made right. But it's going to be by the perfect judge, not by you. Uh, and then Romans 12 is one of many instances quoted to Deuteronomy that vengeance is mine, I will repay. Leave vengeance to the God's wrath, right? It's not our jo job to run around and, you know, right every wrong. That, that's, that's, that's not our place. Um, there's so many instances where we just stay out of it. Um, there's other places where we can't stay out of it, but ultimately our job isn't, it's not ultimate justice. Only God can do that. We, we can't even do that, uh, even if we wanted to. If we, even if we had right perceptions, uh, we're not going to make things right. And then there's just that constant refrain that mercy triumphs over justice. Um, mercy and justice in God's eyes are not opposed. Right? They are distinct categories, but only God knows how to kind of apply that. So when we have uh, the opportunity to uh, lean one way or the other, James is really clear. We lean towards mercy. Um, mercy ought to be oozing out of us. That ought to be the characteristic that defines us um, so much more than justice and judgment. Um, although we ought to be just people, but, but above all, we ought to be seen as those who are merciful. Again, even as I speak, it sounds like I'm pitting those against each other or not. Um, but I know in our own limited and often sinful way, we're not sure which way to go. And I would say these verses have us lean uh, towards mercy when we're not sure. So I'm going to start, I'm going to ask a few questions here. So um, again, these are meant for discussion. So if you want to, I'll pause for a little bit. If you want to pause the video as you think about your own answers, 
or if you're able to watch this in a group and you can have a discussion. Um, the next few slides um, I think would make for some great discussion questions. So I'm, I'm sorry we can't do that together as a class. Um, so I said that this verse is misquoted a lot. So let's kind of, let, let's dive into what does it really mean to judge others? And what doesn't it mean? Does this mean that we shouldn't discern good from evil? Um, so when you say don't judge, like don't have categories of it, good and evil, and don't, don't be able to recognize and discern good from evil. Um, what evidence do we have? Let's just start with Matthew 7 alone. As you look at the passage, um, whoops, I won't give you any answers there. See, I think I'm going to have to jump out of this real quick. With the Zoom stuff. Uh, let's see. Well, never mind. I don't know how to pause it. So we're just going to go with it. All right. So I would, okay, if you look in verse six, he immediately says, um, Do not give dogs what is holy. Uh, do not cast your pearls before pigs. Well, clearly, immediately after this passage, um, Jesus is calling us to recognize things that are holy. So we're going to have to recognize what's holy and what's unholy. Um, we're going to, there are certain things that are called pearls. We're going to keep them from certain people that he calls pigs and dogs. Now, we're not going to get into exactly what he might mean there, but clearly we are to make judgments in the sense that we are to discern good from evil um, just by the language that he immediately uses. In verse 11, he talks about a good gift. Well, we have to know what, what good and bad is if we're going to define what kind of gift it is. And, of course, all the passages we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we, we have to be able to discern, um, you know, a sheep from a wolf, um, a true prophet from a false prophet. We're going to have to discern good and bad fruit, a healthy tree and a diseased tree. Um, and, in fact, he specifically says we will recognize them by their fruit. We're going to discern them. And so we ought to discern. We ought to be um, looking to discern. That's actually part of our calling. So if don't judge others means don't make any judgments, period. Just like, let's just, let's just smooth over differences between what's good and bad. And um, well, that's certainly not what we're called to. Um, and so sometimes uh, there's lots of realms where this matters, but sometimes we look at different cultures, different cultures act a certain way, their laws are a certain way. I mean, you'll have cultures that have cannibalism, right? Or all sorts of things. We have our own culture in our own country where slavery was legal. Um, so you, our, our objective truth can't be majority wins, right? The, the majority of people in a certain culture make a decision and therefore that's what's right. That defines right and wrong. No, we have an objective truth um, that ultimately we can only get from God. And so certainly it is, it is right and is necessary for us to call some things good and some things evil. In fact, Hebrews 5 says that, uh, says that a mark of maturity is the ability to discern good from evil. And so that can't be what he means. Um, what about, does this mean I shouldn't compare myself to others? Okay, maybe I have these generic um, categories of good and evil, but what about when it comes to people, like specific people too? I mean, you know, should I compare myself to someone else? Because that sounds quite plausible, right? I don't, do we want to, we're all going to compare ourselves to God and fall short, but what about comparing myself to someone else? Well, 
what about, look at the rest of the Sermon Mount. Go back to chapters 5 and 6. Is there anywhere that Jesus commands us to compare ourselves to others? I'll give you a second to pause if you want. Okay, well, I found a few. Uh, if you start at the Beatitudes, it's somewhat implied, right? Here's the eight ways that you're blessed, and, and this is how to be happy in God, as sons of God, as children of the Father. Um, right there, he's comparing how you would be. So there is something that's contrasted with being poor in spirit, right? Whatever poor in spirit means, there's a way that you're not poor in the spirit. Um, or, or go to verse 13, salt and light. We've already talked about this. The whole, the whole idea of salt and light is to make a difference, and you have to be different. You have to be distinct. And so we have to understand what it means to be distinct, right? As opposed to those salt that doesn't have its taste or light that is hidden under a basket. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, righteousness must exceed that of scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus right there in his immediate context is comparing himself and his followers to scribes and Pharisees. Uh, verse 46 in chapter 5, your perfection includes being different from tax collectors and Gentiles. He's actually being able to point out to people right there, maybe people that were even in the crowd. Um, and obviously he, he meant it in a way that's much bigger than maybe people would have taken it. Chapter 6, we were told not to be like the hypocrites. Uh, verse 7, we were told not, don't pray like the Gentiles. Verse 32, don't worry like the Gentiles. So we can't say that not judging others is, is to avoid any comparison whatsoever for this. And what about, does this mean we shouldn't worry about our brother at all? Okay, let's just bring, come bring it within the church. So this is specifically talking about not judging your brother. Uh, I think it probably does apply outside of that, but he's specifically talking about not judging your brother. Um, so does that mean if my brother seems to be strained to me, it's just not something I should be concerned with? What biblical passages come to your mind to answer that question? You can pause there if you want. Some of the passages I thought of offhand were James 5 is an important one. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Psalm 51, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Malachi 2, true instruction was in the, his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. And so we can't say the, the response to not wanting to judge our brothers is to not worry about him. Um, we care about our brother. If we, we see our brother strain and sinning, we're actually supposed to go after him. We want to save him from death. How unloving would it be to see if you, you see someone in danger and you're in a position to help and you don't help them? Because, oh, it would be awkward, or people were going to find me judgmental, or I'm not perfect. Those would all be kind of natural things to say, wouldn't they? So it kind of presents us with this, a bit of a quandary. How am I supposed to hear my brother, um, and yet I'm supposed to worry about this log before I go after a speck? Well, notice that in Matthew 7, verse 5, the whole goal is actually to eventually Get the speck out of my brother's eye. Jesus is not telling you not to worry about the speck. He's not saying that ultimately you'll want that speck removed. He's, he's actually saying 
remove that log from your own eye so that you may see clearly to move the speck from your brother's eye. And so in the end, everyone gets their eyes cleaned, right? That's, that's the final goal. Um, but what he's saying is when, you, when we rush to judge our brothers and, and don't notice our own log, not only are we being hypocrites, and not only are we missing the log in our own eye, we're actually being ineffective at helping our brother, which was presumably the whole point, right? So that's really the bottom line question, right? Um, how, how do we do this? Now we have a goal that we want to get to. We can't just avoid the whole situation. That would be the easy way out. I don't care about what my brother does. I don't care about what my, how my neighbors live. I just have to worry about me and my family and my little circle. No, Jesus is letting that offer. And yet we have to do it in a way that avoids hypocrisy. So sometimes we use these biblical phrases, these words, and we just kind of throw them out there. Let's slow down a little bit and really think. Don't think about how others define hypocrisy or how it's used in, you know, common parlance. How would you define hypocrisy? Just look at these first five verses. Let's start there. Um, look at those through again. What would you say, based on this text alone, that what would be one way you could define hypocrisy? So one way I did it was uh, seeing and caring about other faults more than your own. So there's the whole idea of seeing it, right? I noticed their speck instead of my log, and then caring about the other faults. Like, I'm not taking care of the log in mine, so I want to see and care about other faults um, to, to do that more than my own faults, seeing and caring about my own faults. Um, that, I think, would be a decent definition of hypocrisy here. And you might have, a, have another one. How about if you go back to Matthew 6, hypocrisy was talked about there, but perhaps in a slightly different way. The way I defined it back then when we looked, went through that was, number one, there were, there were two aspects I saw. First, seeking the praise of others, right? He calls that being a hypocrite. And so if, you, if, if your religious works, your, your works for others, your works of devotion to God, um, if you do that in a way that's just to get the praise of others, uh, not really what they're intended for, Jesus calls that hypocrisy. And then I think we have a specific uh, verses there when he talks about the Lord's Prayer. You know, if we don't forgive others their sins, we're not, how can we ask God to forgive our sins? And so I think you could say uh, hypocrisy can be defined as um, demanding from others, asking for, for that which we're unwilling to give to others. So why, why would we ask from God something we're not willing to give? We have uh, the different parables, right, about the, the, the leaders that, um, you know, someone is owed, owes him a debt, and he he demands it. He's just he's going to throw him in prison, and yet he owes his master much more and was forgiven. And so that's how it is under God, right? We are all sinners, and so how can we expect and demand from others uh, a standard that we can't possibly uphold in the sight of God? So how would you now combine these uh, two? Maybe give that a couple seconds of thought. So we have Matthew seven not worrying, not seeing, and, and caring about other people's faults as much as our own. And now we have the seeking the praise of others. What would be maybe a holistic definition of hypocrisy? And a couple of things I came up with then were 
the so the base the way to avoid hypocrisy would be to truly care about others. It's kind of that simple, right? I care about other people, and I'm primarily concerned with God's judgment. And ultimately, I think it's seeking hypocrisy would be to seek status instead of really claiming about someone else uh, and their holiness. And so, if, for instance, if I'm going to run to my brother in a, in a judgmental spirit and quote-unquote help him with his problem, with his speck in his eye, am I really caring about his holiness and his purity? Because Jesus says if I do, I would look at after my own log and my own eye first. Or am I going to him under the guise of the fact that, oh, I should look out for my brother, right? The strong should care for the weak. Um, but really what I'm doing in that instance is I'm, I'm kind of looking after my own status. I'm wanting this, this young or weak brother to look up to me. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to become his savior in a sense. I'm going to become the one that he needs to help him and to lead him along in this life. And, and you can see how insidious that would be because we're called to help others. We're, we're called, the mature are called to help the immature. Um, these could be proper categories, right? It's just that we're, we're using that whole category of helping one another in a chance to advance ourselves. It's not really about our brother. That's ultimately what I think hypocrisy is. You're not really caring about the person you pretend to be caring about. You're ultimately doing something that looks like you're caring for them, but it's really about yourself. I think that is a pretty decent um, definition of hypocrisy. Now, so here's the overall question, and this is really my last question, but it's the big one. So what on earth are we to do? When we, when we see our brother or sister, you know, the poor attitude, poor thinking, wrong doctrine, wrong conduct, and we, in our minds, we immediately say, oh, that is not in accordance with God's standard. What do you do? That, that is the ultimate question. So how do I take each instance and what are the types of things I want to think about before I decide to, to deal with this or not? Do I say something or not? How do I do it? How quick do I do it? So I'll pause for a few seconds if you want to pause there and think about that. All right, well, here are some of the things that I thought about. Number one, let's go back to what I had said. Those three things that Jesus teaches us. The first one was about equal judgment. So how do you make an equal judgment, a, an objective, fair judgment? Number one, do you have the facts to, to actually judge? Um, are you just kind of presuming motives or presuming facts? Um, are you ready to listen? Right? Instead of jumping into the judgment category or removing spec uh, role, how about you, you sit and listen and really understand what's going on? Number one, you might find out that there's a lot more to it than what it what meets the eye. Um, or if nothing else, you're, you're getting to know the person. They're getting to know you. Clearly, that time to sit and listen is showing this person that you care about them. And that's the whole point, right? We want to avoid hypocrisy. We want to, we want to genuinely care for our brother and sister. Uh, I think what's explicitly in the text is to look at your own life first, right? So your immediate reaction when you see someone else um, sinning is, whoa, am I overlooking my own sin? Am I overlooking 
some very clear um, uh, issue in my own life that is going to make my my reaching out to them uh, ineffective at best um, or very presumptive and hypocritical at worst. Um, remember, if, if, so if you're sitting there struggling with how to remove the speck from your brother's eye, what Jesus says here is it might be because you haven't removed a log from your own eye. Because he says, if you remove that log, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so if you're struggling, if this is hard for you, you're going to get help. You're praying about this. You're seeking uh, the guidance of others. What do I do? Which are all great things. Don't forget, part of the issue might just be that you have a log in your eye that you need to deal with. And then voila, God might just show you clearly how to take care of this brother in a non-hypocritical way. Lots of other things can be said. Clearly, we, we could just say from not everything needs to be said, right? Not every sin or fault needs to be pointed out. It's very possible what you see, they already know about themselves. They don't need someone rubbing it in their faces and being a mirror, like the, the law is a mirror, showing you your sin. They get it, um, right? It, in the words of James, is, is this sin leading them to death? Is it, is it leading them to destruction? Or is it just a weakness in the flesh that they're struggling with? They're, you know, they're, they're trying to... Um, they're trying to struggle against it and you're just like holding them down as they struggle. You're just taunting them. That's what it's going to come across as. So be careful. Um, and obviously we all know this criticism from our friends. Um, you know, the wounds of a friend, uh, although it's hard to take, we can take it right. When we know that someone cares for us, we can we actually listen to what they say because we know they love us. You can say hard things when you have an ongoing relationship. And so the best person to tell someone about a sin that they're involved in is someone who knows them well. That is the best. And so if you don't know someone well, if you don't have a good relationship, maybe uh, you got to be careful of gossip, obviously, but maybe, maybe you go to someone who's closer. Or maybe you start developing that relationship. And that struggle might come out um, naturally. But also... It's just such a great reminder why we should be in community. Are you in a, in a community of people that will help you see your own logs and, and be honest enough to, um, to bear that load with you, Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens? Um, are you in those kind of relationships so that when you fall into a struggle that you might not see, um, not only will someone point that out for you, but they'll help you out of it? You don't want to wait until you're in the mire, right? You want to already have those relationships built and established. That ought to be part something of your weekly and monthly habit um, and your schedule ought to have community with others. Um, and that's the whole point. We have things like Sunday school and Bible studies and community groups. There's one anothering that you cannot do on a Sunday morning. Uh, if you're in person or on Zoom, it doesn't matter. There's, you've got to be in relationship with others. And I think the bottom line for this question is motivation is the key. This is where you need to search your heart. Am I, again, am I going to my brother so that I can gain their praise, that I can board it over them, that I can um, kind of win some lifelong disciple that will look up for me and puff me up? Um, or am I, am I, am I, 
Am I helping his attention and his affections go to Christ? Am I setting the way? Am I a distraction to the relationship to Christ? Or am I a help in that relationship? Um, do you find yourself praying for them? Maybe for their salvation, uh, if they're not a believer, or for their maturity in Christ? Or are you more complaining and looking down at them? Are you pleading before the throne of grace uh, for them? Are you, are you broken over them? Are you truly, genuinely concerned for them? Does it hurt you? Um, or are you more relished in the criticism? And you, you get the chance to flaunt your knowledge of the scriptures and flaunt you know, how your life is going. Or do you genuinely, genuinely love them? And that is ultimately doing unto others what you would have them do for you. So I'm not going to really deal with this, but since I mentioned it, look how simple this command is. I mean, we have all these commands, and we, we talked in the second week, second or third week, about you know not necessarily knowing which of the Old Testament commands come to the New Covenant, and you can disagree with all that, but for the most part, it's kind of simple, right? Lots of places we have in the New Testament, the, the sum of the whole law is to love your neighbors yourself. Like, what would you want someone else to do for you? That's how you treat them. That's it. That, that pretty much will answer most of our questions. So what a practical um, command we have from Jesus here. So I hope that was helpful to you. I'd love to take any of your um, uh, questions or comments, send them my way. We can have a, an email discussion, I guess. Um, again, we are done with Sermon on the Mount. Um, so I'm not going to say next week, but Dave McGuire has been preparing a series on apologetics. I'm not sure exactly how long it is, four to six weeks, something in there, I think. But again, we're, we're not exactly sure. We'll, we'll try to get that word out to you. Um, you know, maybe we'll just have a, a pre-saved one each week. If you have an idea of how to do it, shoot it our way and we'll consider it. Um, but be in prayer for that series. So look forward. Uh, some of you, some of us are getting to worship this morning already. Uh, look forward to seeing each of you in the coming weeks. And let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you uh, for the spirit who is not, um, is not affected by COVID. He can move wherever he wills, and he does. I pray for our elders as they make the decisions on the practicalities of how to meet and how to socially distance and just to get that balance right. We pray for the, the virus to be stamped out of, our, of the world and uh, so that people's lives aren't at risk, uh, people's livelihoods aren't at risk, and, uh, and that we can come together again as a people to worship uh, and to uh, serve you together. And we trust that you'll do all these things. Thank you again for the Sermon on the Mount, for the, for the words of Jesus. Uh, um, we pray that they would penetrate. Um, they're so simple in some ways, but so life transformative. We pray that that would be true. Uh, each and every one of us, that we would, we would look at these, these commands um, as bluntly as we're supposed to not to nuance them, not to avoid the, the real hard truth, but, but rather remind us of our sweet justification in Christ, that we are approved because of our faith alone, um, not how we measure up. And then let us run with great boldness 
out of gratitude, uh, running the race for the reward set before us. Help us to, to strive uh, and to be salt and light in this world. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>